0: the bowery boys episode 92 steinway the piano man hey it's the bowery boys hey the bowery boys is brought to you by eurocheapo.com eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in europe now with hotels in new york city on the web at eurocheapo.com Hello. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. I am back with the solo show. I hope you're not too disappointed. Tom isn't here this week. Today's topic on the surface, I guess, might seem kind of stodgy. This is Steinway and Sons. They are the famed piano manufacturers who presently have a factory in Queens. I'm going to confess, I actually started out to do a broader topic this week, namely the history of Astoria, which is the neighborhood that the Steinway factory is currently located. And one day I promise either I or Tom and I will both get to that show, I promise. It's got a great history, the silent film era is tied there, some adulterous Puritans, of course, John Jacob Astor, lots of good stuff, but that's for another time. Instead, I actually got distracted by this story, which actually became really fascinating the more I learned about it. Steinway got its start in New York in 1853, and it grew to become an internationally renowned maker of pianos. I like this story because it's pretty much your classic immigrant rags to riches tale from the mid 19th century slum era New York. And their growth as a company closely parallels New York's growth as a city. And when they eventually moved to Queens in the 1870s, some of the events that transpire within that and some of the decisions that the Steinway sons make are actually really pivotal to the borough of Queens today. Now, don't worry. I know nothing about how to actually make a piano. I can't even play the piano. This won't be about those innovations that they make with this instrument per se, but how those successes helped turn New York into a city with just a little bit more class. Now, there's about 20 puns I could make here right now, but I'll just stick with stay tuned for my history on Steinway & Sons. So throughout this podcast, I'll be mentioning a few sites here in Manhattan that are very important to the early days of today's topic, but the heart of our story is actually an entire neighborhood in Queens a neighborhood that actually goes by the name of Steinway. Since neighborhood names and their borders are sometimes very flexible around here, many residents of Steinway actually prefer to say that they live in Astoria. It is in the northern part of Astoria, or they may say the neighborhood of Dittmars. Looking at a map of New York, it's actually very easy to find the Steinway part of Astoria. Just find Rikers Island, and Steinway is the area of Queens just to the southwest of it. Or even easier. You can find LaGuardia Airport, and the Steinway neighborhood is immediately to the west, It's fairly residential for reasons which I'll reveal later in the podcast, and its star attraction to this day is the Steinway & Sons Piano Manufacturing Plant. This neighborhood is the remnant of a company town that was operated by the Steinways, who then went on to become one of the most influential families in Queens, and of course a symbol of pride for German immigrants. Now to pause for a second, because it is odd that a piano manufacturer would figure prominently in New York's Industrial Revolution and so greatly in its history, but the Steinways made their name here in the mid 19th century which is prime time to spring a luxury item into New York's upperly mobile class. In the era before recorded music, middle class and upper class homes often featured musical instruments amongst the other furnishings. This was made possible by major innovations in instrument design in renowned factories in Vienna and Paris. A piano, a formerly rare instrument that might be thought to only appeal to, say, the upper, upper crust of New York, the skirmerhorn asters, if you will, was actually becoming desirable. by the middle classes now and could even be mass-produced for them. But for New Yorkers who essentially wanted to become Europeans to emulate the European style, well, they needed an American version of these great European piano makers – and so this was essentially the genius of the Steinways and how they were able to find their success in New York. They basically made the pianos an American product and then helped make New York music lovers. Their story starts back at the very beginning of the 19th century with a man named Heinrich Engelgard Steinweg, born in Wolfshagen, Germany, who, believe it or not, is a young soldier, fought Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, Then years later, as a carpenter at age 38, would build his very first piano for his new bride. Within a year, he would then make his very first grand piano. And this very first grand piano, believe it or not, you can actually find at the Metropolitan Museum of Art today. Steinweg, and notice I'm saying Steinweg, not Steinway, that wouldn't happen yet. Stay with me here. Steinweg stayed in Germany, making a small number of pianos and also employing his sons in the business. In 1849, his youngest son, Carl, traveled to New York and I guess must have had a few nice things to say about the city because within a year's time, Heinrich and his entire family closed up their shop in Germany and arrived in New York Harbor on June 29th of 1850. Their very first home would be at 199 Hester Street between Baxter and Mulberry. The Steinwegs were at the start of a huge German immigrant migration movement that began around this time and would eventually make New York the fourth largest German-speaking city in the entire world. In fact, over 800,000 Germans came to New York during the decade of the 1850s. Now, for you 5 Points buffs out there, and I know there's a few, that legendary slum of yore was actually not far from the Steinweg's first home and brings home the point that while the Steinways might have done all right for themselves back in Germany, here here in New York, they would essentially have to start over. Believe it or not, there were almost 50 piano manufacturers already in the United States in the 1850s. And the Steinway Sons began apprenticing at various factories throughout the city, probably as much to learn more industrialized practices that were happening in the United States, as well as to find out how future competitors were making their instruments. It was around this time then that Heinrich Steinweg changed his name to the more English-sounding Henry Steinway. And soon Henry and Sons opened their first store and workshop in 1853, first in a loft on Varick Street and then to a larger showroom on Walker Street. They would have several examples of products for sale and examples of those that could be made or customized for certain customers. It's sad that one of the keys to Steinway's early successes, believe it or not, was his charming eldest daughter, Doretta, who often offered to give free piano lessons to anyone who would purchase a piano. Considering that many people were buying these pianos as status symbols, and also considering that young ladies who could play the piano also were seen as being suitable brides, one cannot understate the value of a free piano lesson by the piano maker's daughter. Now, while the Steinways seem to have had some reputation when they arrived in New York, it appears that the best way to get your name out if you were a piano manufacturer and wanted people to know your product, well, it was to make exceptionally good instruments and then enter them in competitions. There's nothing New Yorkers like more than having a blue ribbon panel telling them exactly what to buy. And so it was at the Metropolitan Mechanics Institutional Fair in 1855 sounds like a blast. The Metropolitan Mechanics Institutional Fair was held at the newly built Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. So it was down there that they won grand prize for an instrument that the New York Times called, quote, "...incomparably superior to anything ever presented," unquote. Then the Steinways accomplished an even greater feat the next year. New York City was having their own World's Fair or exposition. And in the area that's Bryant Park today was this beautiful pavilion called the Crystal Palace. For more information on this, you'll have to go back to our archives and listen to our New York public library podcast where we talk more about this. Anyway, so this is where the exposition was going on. The Steinways chose to debut an innovative new model of the common square piano, which is what most people had in their homes. So they introduced that here for competition at the fair. And once again, quoting the New York Times, quote, the jurors gathered round and without a word spoken, everyone knew this was the best piano in the exhibition. No argument? no discussion. So, superior products, racking up all these awards, no doubt by this time they needed a bigger showroom. They moved up to 82 Mercer Street in today's Soho area, in a large enough space to usher in prospective buyers, and it also didn't hurt that this showroom was only a block away from Broadway. By 1860, they were actually selling 500 pianos a year, and while the showroom was fine, the workshop was simply not big enough to meet the demand. These were, after all, pianos. These are huge objects. Steinway was employing dozens of men in the manufacture of these very delicate things, and now even required their own lumber yard. The Steinways were ready to turn it up a notch, or if Tom were here, he would say, the Steinways were ready to make a key change. So in 1860, they built their very first Steinway Piano Factory, and it's fascinating where they built it. It was on 4th Avenue, which is what it was called back then. Today, we simply know it as Park Avenue, between 52nd and 55th Streets, in a sea of slaughterhouses and breweries. This was not a pretty area. And on top of it, it was right in front of these busy railroad tracks, that in just a few years would become this system that would lead to the shiny new Grand Central Depot. Certainly, there was nothing more unusual than a luxury piano factory in the midst of a sooty, filthy industrial cross-section. This was truly pre-Park Avenue, well before any of its connotations of wealth and class. Although productions of new pianos here was proceeding swimmingly, things were not always so peaceful at the factory, Most of their employees were German immigrants, many skilled artisans themselves, just like Heinrich. This, and the fact that it was a factory owned by a rich man, made it a target of ire during the draft riots of 1863, a completely chaotic time pulling New York into its own civil war. Poor immigrants, angry at the wealthier New Yorkers who could essentially buy their way out of the Union's draft of soldiers during the Civil War, took to the streets in protests, causing havoc and burning down a lot of factories. The Steinway sons literally stood watch as clusters of angry rioters would approach, and in a very bizarre effort to protect their factory, they would actually pay off these riot leaders with $20, $40 in cash. In one case, they even wrote a torch-wielding rioter a check for $30. That's one way to get them off your stoop. Although the Steinway factory got off scot-free, the downtown showrooms were, ingratiously graciously, had been used to store hundreds of knapsacks of a National Guard regiment that had been called in to quell the rioters. No word whether any of those pianos were damaged. In 1866, the Steinways made one of their more clever promotional moves. They moved the piano showroom again, this time to where the action was at in the 1860s, 14th Street near Union Square, and more specifically, really close by the Academy of Music, which was the spot for serious music lovers in the 19th century. But this just wasn't a plain old room of a bunch of pianos sitting around. It was actually attached to a 2,000-seat performance hall, this new building, called Steinway Hall, will become one of New York's leading concert halls, not just for music, but for a wide variety of lectures and gatherings, hosting the likes of Henry Ward Beecher, Sojourner Truth, and even the notorious Victoria Woodhull would speak here a couple times. In fact, off and on, it would even be the home of the of an early version of the New York Philharmonic before they moved in to their new digs up at Carnegie Hall. The catch with this, which I find kind of clever... The lobby of this grand hallway was a Steinway showroom. You had to walk by dozens of examples of their products to get to the show that you were trying to see. And believe me, most likely, if you were seeing a show at Steinway Hall, you were probably a potential client. Well done, Mr. Steinway. So we're up to 1869 now, and the Steinway operation, which had now passed over to his sons, William and Henry Jr., is fully entrenched into the lifeblood of New York, both as an employer at its manufacturing plant, but also as a presenter of high culture at its new Steinway Hall, and as a deaf promoter in its adjoining showrooms. So then, how is it that they get to Queen's? And why, really? Their Fourth Avenue factory at this time isn't even 10 years old. But of course, the speed of urban growth waits for no man. The cost of owning a plant in New York was becoming more and more expensive, a lot more unwieldy. And many businessmen were already moving over to cheaper real estate in Brooklyn and Williamsburg and some towns in Queens County. And there was one significant event in 1860 that actually made Queens particularly attractive at this time, the rerouting of the Long Island Railroad from Brooklyn northward to a terminus at Hunter's Point in Queens County. This would be a boon for Queens with new roads and development opportunities, particularly in the area of historic which was near Hunter's Point. So that made it move to Queens a lot more attractive to the Steinways, although one source I did read admits that there might have been one diabolical reason behind this. By moving to a more remote location, Steinway could actually thwart labor activists, quote, anarchists and socialists, continually breeding discontent among our workers, unquote, were his own words. The Steinways would have rather uneasy relations with their workers and some of these workers' unions throughout the 19th century and early 20th. And so, throughout the 1870s, in a truly unprecedented upheaval, the Steinways purchased 400 acres in this, at the time, desolate part of North Queens and built a massive factory here with river access and docks to accommodate the hundreds of workers that they would need. They also commissioned a company village with row houses to rent for workers on streets named after Steinway family members and lots of necessities like a school, a church, a library, and even a Steinway trolley to transport employees from place to place. This appropriately enough would be called Steinway Village. They even, believe it or not, developed a resort area, a beer hall, and theme park right to the east of the village called North Beach, which the Steinways hoped would appeal beyond their German employees and would become a little bit of a miniature Coney Island here in Queens. Now, believe it or not, most of the company village, most of Steinway Village, is still standing, including a lot of those row houses. But don't go looking for the North Beach theme park. It closed during Prohibition, and the only thing you'll find in its place is a few taxing airplanes at LaGuardia Airport. Now, this move out of Manhattan was assisted by a monumental change to North Queens in 1870. Steinway would be moving in just as the towns of Astoria, Ravenswood, Hunters Point, Bowery Bay, basically all the towns in North Queens at this time, well, they would all be squeezed together to form the newly chartered Long Island City, which would then become the county seat for Queens. Suddenly, Steinway's new village would be part of a newly empowered city, which through greater influence would give the Steinways more autonomy and presumably more power over the civic life of its employees. Long Island City would actually remain an independent city until 1898, when consolidation with the other boroughs would dissolve its temporary borders once and for all. But during this brief period, the Steinway Company would actually achieve international recognition far beyond the borders of New York, and the son of Henry, William Steinway, would begin dabbling in far more than pianos. Now a local leader here in Long Island City, with interests far outside of his corporation, William Steinway looked at his little horse-drawn trolley line that he had created for his employees and saw an application citywide and into other boroughs. He actually dreamed of extending this into New York and even began work in 1892 to burrow a tunnel under the East River connecting his trolleys to transportation hubs on the other side. Unfortunately, he died before he saw his completed project, which would eventually become the number seven subway line today. The 20th century has been pretty good for this homegrown company, becoming an international brand name, making over half a million pianos since it opened down on Barrick Street. Steinway is still in Steinway, the neighborhood, where they crank out about 2,500 instruments a year, although the village part is pretty much dissolved, and the Steinway family doesn't even own the company anymore. That old Steinway Hall? On 14th Street, that's gone too. But a new Steinway Hall was constructed on 57th Street in 1925. A far more modest affair with a much smaller stage but newer, shinier showrooms. The entire building was actually designed by Warren and Wetmore, one of the firms that just a few years earlier had worked on the main building at Grand Central Terminal. Now, before I go, just in case you were wondering, yes, I do realize on top of wood and strings, keys of pianos also used to be made of ivory. In fact, Steinways would be made with elephant ivory up until 1982, although it would outsource all the dirty work to outside distributors in New England to make and provide those keys for them. You can currently go on tours of the Steinway Piano Factory, and I believe that they still have remnants of their early history scattered throughout the plant. I will put some information on how you can go on those tours on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll also have a few pictures illustrating some of the points that I made in this week's podcast. Tom will be back in two weeks. with a great new political-themed show in store for you. It will be around Election Day here in New York City, so stick around for that one. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.